this is a this is a pretty special episode. It's one I've been uh, setting up for a little while, and I, I think you are really going to enjoy it. So I'm I'm starting instead of a, the usual cold open, you know, cheeky cut from the interview. I'm just going to begin uh, quickly with a, a a little bit of a rant and a and a call to action. I guess I think that's the name for it. So. I was thinking about uh, conferences this summer. Joanna is going to uh, Suwannee. She's going to the Suwannee Writers Conference in August. So if any of you uh, are planning to go or planning to apply, go go hang out with my wife, who will be just slamming back uh, tequila moderately and uh, responsibly down at the French house. But uh, I will be here with the girls, that, uh, so so I won't, I won't be going to Swanee. But I was thinking I might go, I might at least try see about going to Poetry by the Sea or Westchester. I went to Westchester, you know, a decade ago. I've never been to Poetry by the Sea. Uh, if if any of you know about those or have a recommendation or a, I know they sometimes feud with each other. Or they used to at least. Uh, give me give me a heads up. Uh, maybe I'll see somebody there, but the, but the, so I was looking though. Not the applications aren't up for either of them, but I was looking at one of them, and and I noticed that on the on the the general requirements listed, I, I I may have been seeing this wrong. I may have been reading it wrong. I hope I was making a mistake. I hope I was reading it wrong. But it looked like one of the things they require <laughs> is uh, three letters of recommendation, and. You know, it made me think about letters of recommendation. I've written a fair number of letters of recommendation. I've certainly uh, requested and gotten lots of letters of recommendation from from you know teachers and mentors and bosses in the past. Any uh, any academic application requires letters letters of recommendation. Uh, lots of writerly, certainly poetry, you know, concerned applications require letters of recommendation, often multiple, often three. Three is a kind of a magic number for a lot of applications in this world. And there are some, you know, sometimes universities will will set up a dossier where you'll have several letters all collected together and you can, you can have them sent out with applications. You just pay your dossier service, uh, you know, a, a regular sum of money and they We'll, we'll keep these letters and send them out. Of course, the letters get dated. Yeah, you do have to replenish them. Sometimes uh, certain jobs or applications or, 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 or gigs or uh, uh, awards will have specific requirements or you end up needing a new, applica- a, new, a new letter of recommendation from a new person or somebody who's more relevant to this particular arena. And it just got me thinking about how in our age of uh, heightened concern for egalitarianism, for equality, for fair play. It's fucking unbelievable that we still have letters of recommendation. Unbelievable. There's no excuse for it. There really isn't. I mean, let me say this. Like, I am an upper middle class, white, well-educated male with, you know, I'm not very connected, but like, I know a fair number of people. I've had a lot of teachers. I've had a dossier service in the past. You know, as as, as letters of recommendation go, I, I have resources. I can hustle up some letters of recommendation if ever I need them. But I fucking hate to do it. I hate it. 
and I don't do it anymore. I guess years ago I stopped because it's just it's too awful and stupid and ridiculous. It's just too much of a fucking burden. It sucks. Basically, basically, uh, an application that requires three letter, letters of recommendation is like an application that requires you to go uh, uh, kick three of your friends in the balls. And just say, hey, uh, I, I have some homework I'd like you to do so that I might get this thing. Fucking inexcusable. Because just think for a second, you know, if it is easy for anyone to get a letter of recommendation, it's easy for me. But that's not the case for most people. I mean, for somebody of a different class, of a different race, of different set of circumstances, different resources, different uh, connections, different uh, background, different education, it can become an insane obstacle. And there's one reason. We all know. We all know. There's one actual reason that people ask for letters of recommendation. Because, of course, every letter of recommendation effectively says the same thing which is a superlative thumbs up for the person applying. And so all that really matters is whether you can get a letter of recommendation from somebody who is a big fucking deal, not a kind of big deal, not like, oh, I've heard of him, a big deal. If you can get a dispositive letter of recommendation from a big, whomping, major, major figure, then maybe that makes the difference. Otherwise, all it's saying is you have enough resources to be able to annoy three of your friends uh, so that the, into doing you this favor again. Because of course, it's not it's not an every so often favor. If you are in this world and you're constantly applying for things, it's all the fucking time. So it, it, that is what is me it's measuring. And nobody fucking wants to read these letters of recommendation. Most people don't ever read them. They ask for them and then don't read them. And we all know the actual reason they're asking is just to create a hurdle. It's to create red tape. It's deliberately making the process a little bit more difficult so that fewer people apply. The purpose of the letter of recommendation is to uh, require those arbitrating the decision. It's required to require the people deciding on who gets the thing applied for. The purpose is to require them to read fewer applications. That's the only fucking reason people ask for letters of recommendation. I, I used to apply for a lot of academic jobs years ago, and you know there was one academic job I ever applied for that I thought had a, a decent and honest application process. I didn't get the fucking job. Uh, James Arthur got the job. Good poet, good person, good teacher. Uh, he deserved it. But, but the application process was this. A one-page cover letter and your book. That's what was required. Send in a one-page cover letter and your book and we'll get back to you. That's fair. That's legitimate. In fact, honestly, if it's, you know, for, for, for uh, academic jobs, you know, Maybe in the case of actual jobs, job jobs, not, not, not you know, one-year posts, not uh, awards. For a job job, it's legitimate to ask for references. References. That is, phone numbers of people you can call if you're interested. It's legitimate to ask for references. It's legitimate to ask for a one-page cover letter. It's legitimate to ask for a writing sample. And that's 
fucking it. It really is. You know, I'm not a big uh, 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 stirring up the <laughs> the feverish masses kind of guy. I'm not really into uh, you know mass outrage. But man, you know, I I I, I would have a hard time not supporting a a call to cancel fucking letters of recommendation. I mean, if I hate them, then then people for whom they are actually a real burden should really hate them. Fuck that. No more letters of recommendation. And and uh, uh, Poetry by the Sea, Westchester Poetry Conference, those of you who've gone to either of those lately, let me know what you think about them. Uh, but I'll tell you this. If they require a letter of fucking recommendation, fuck that. Poetry by the Sea, everybody involved with that, everybody involved with Westchester, I, God bless you. I I, uh, I know many of you well, and I, I, and I wish you well. And um, I have nothing but reverence and fondness for the the uh, the ghost of Kim Bridgeford, but if you want a letter of recommendation, you can go fuck yourself. All of which is to say, <laughs> what I actually meant to start with <laughs> was a uh, an invitation. So Sleeve Rick is, is getting it's growing slowly, a little bit, but it's getting a little bigger and uh, a little more demanding. So so Slee Ricketts is now looking for an intern. This is specifically a social media intern. If you have any interest, uh, send three letters of recommendation. No, I'm fucking, don't send a letter of recommendation. Send uh, the names of three podcasts you like and uh, three poems you like to sleeverickets at gmail.com. There's no money right now, but I actually would like to amend that as things go along. I should say, if you are somebody for whom a a silly uh, social media internship that does not pay any money is uh, gonna fuck you up financially. Uh, write me anyway. Just just write, just write me. Don't don't not write for that reason. Write me a note anyway. Uh, send me three podcasts you like and three poems you like, uh, and no fucking letters of recommendation to sleeverickets at gmail dot com. And I promise that if you ever try to start a an unpaid uh, podcast social media intern union then i definitely won't hire duke energy goons to come burn down your company-owned hovel now let's get to the fucking show as i said this is going to be a good one I'm Matthew Buckley-Smith, and you're listening to Slee Ricketts. Thank you all for listening. Thank you especially to those of you who've had a chance to uh, recommend the show to somebody you think might like it. This is one you you might want to recommend because I have got a really, really special guest this week. Uh, I don't think I am insulting any of my previous guests if I say that this is by far my most distinguished guest. Uh, today I am speaking with Mary Jo Salter, the author of some baker's dozen of books. Uh, I think eight or nine of them collections of poetry, including the, uh, now available for pre-order collection zoom rooms that, uh, I, the, the, every, everything I've, I've heard or read from it is, uh, very good. And you are going to, she is going to read one little poem from it at the end. Uh, but she is, she's very generously, 
and uh, good-naturedly agreed to come on today, uh, not just to talk about her own poetry, but to talk about a, a curious and provocative essay by Carmine Starnino that uh, appeared in the New Criterion back in April uh, called What Might Have Been. And it is all about what uh, Starnino calls counterfactual poetry anthologies. Uh, in addition to being a distinguished professor, a, a beloved mentor, and uh, a prolific poet and author, uh, Mary Jo is also the co-editor of the last three editions of the Norton Anthology of Poetry. She uh, was in charge of the most recent two centuries of poetry, if memory serves. And she she knows a shitload about anthologizing. So she has uh, she's come on as my anthology expert to talk about this Starnino essay. It is a it's one I've been thinking about for a while, and it's one I I think we we have a lot of arguments with the essay. I will say it's certainly worth reading. I'll, I'll include links, obviously, to, to everything in the show notes. I, I will also say uh, Carmine, who, who I do know Carmine uh, Starnino a little bit. He's, he's edited some of my work in the past. Uh, Carmine, if you hear this, come tell us what we got wrong. Uh, come come on the show or just uh, come on the show and complain about somebody else's fucking essay. Uh, but thank you for writing this. And I hope you all enjoy my conversation with Mary Jo Salter as we, as we pull it to fucking ribbons. That's part of what creativity is. And so I think what's interesting about Starnino's take on anthologies is he's saying that in some cases, people are taking anthologies not so much as a record of what inarguably was, but a record of what might have been. Right. Um, it was all written, what the poems that somebody puts into an unsuccessful anthology and the poems, different poems that someone puts into a successful one, those poems were all written. And the question is, what are the standards that went into making that anthology. And so in some sense, I guess I'm getting back to this word counterfactual. I'm not convinced it's the right word for a very interesting subject. Yeah. It does seem as if there's a little bit of a conflation across a, a few different types of anthologies. He, Cause he talks about Van, so so he he starts with this Peter Van Torn anthology that never was that is, is counterfactual in another right. sense that it doesn't exist but it it was well it existed it, but it wasn't published right that's true yeah of course it, it was put together right. but it didn't it was not published uh, and and that's part of what I guess makes an anthology an anthology it's not that the poems weren't there before it's that they weren't presented with this prominence you know in this in this right. particular way but Van Torn's goal it, with this this book mainstream that he completed in 1973 that was declined for publication was to was to compile an alternate an, an alternative to Canadian poetic history it, that he was sort of saying rather than let's he I mean he basically as at least in Sarnino's uh, framing tries to ignore the poetry that had been prominent in in Canada and set forth this different tradition and say well this is what Canadian poetry is and, mm -hmm. and that seems like 
re- related somewhat. So we talked later on, uh, and I, I do the same thing you do, where I have to print things out, and then often yeah. I will I will print them out, and then I will retype sections of them so I can see them. <laughs> right. But, yeah. But he talks about uh, Yeats anthology. Um, yes. The Oxford Book of Modern Verse. And he talks about Rita Doves. Very uh, Penguin, famous. Yeah. Yeah, Penguin anthology of twentieth century twentieth century American poetry in uh, two thousand eleven, and in both of those cases, he he sort of mentions that there was some. Uh, some you know uh, displeasure that people had about various people that they left out. That both of those were meant to be uh, sort of historical, official, factual anthologies, and they, because of the taste or the prejudice of the editor, they left out kind of what should have been important inclusions. And that right. seems related to the Van Torn anthology, but different from say you know he cites as counterfactual. Donald Allen's anthology, a number of uh, um, sort of uh, alternative tradition anthologies. I thought mm-hmm. of the, the, do you know the Michael Robbins essay, Repost, which is on the uh, the Paul Hoover postmodern American poetry anthology? You know, I, I must have read it, but I, it's some, it, it's like it isn't coming up to mind. Yeah, yeah. Ten, ten I know that old. anthology though. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, his, his observation was that there's a, there's a little bit of a sleight of hand being performed by this kind of anthology, which is maybe different from Donald Allen, who was saying, here are all the poems being ignored. Here's the new other poetry. Mm-hmm. What mm-hmm. Paul Hoover, what Paul Hoover's anthology is saying, according to Robbins is here, here is the ignored tradition, the alternative tradition, the other tradition. And, and Robbins really only, you know, observation is, well, that's actually the mainstream. That, that uh-huh. is the, that is what Charles Bernstein once called official, you know, official poetry, you know, official verse culture, but it's, it is what has always styled itself as avant-garde or as, you know, revolutionary. And it, it seems like there, there's sort of a few different things happening here where Starnino has this idea of a, a kind of S. I mean, it seems in some ways like the Van Toren anthology is the only true example of what he's thinking of as a counterfactual anthology it's not mm-hmm. just it's not just here are my favorite poems it's not just uh, here here are some good poems and i left out some things that i don't like it's here is what i assert is the main historical thrust of poetry while knowing that it's actually not that it's something else right and so you so it seems to me that the number one criterion for anybody for any anthology that anyone's putting together is define your terms define your goal right so what are you attempting to do are you attempting to show some of the other strands of poetry during a certain period that you feel were underrepresented, you have your opportunity to write an introductory essay, you get to say that, right? Or are you saying, um, I had my graduate students uh, last semester put together what we call personal anthologies. And I specifically said, this is not about what it what you believe is historically necessarily important or what is you know in any kind of re- received way the best this is simply what you love and it's a way to find out what is my taste why do i love these things so like a, like a com- you know, commonplace book kind of people used to call well it, yeah in a sense uh that's i hadn't thought of that but that's it's actually it's a useful way of thinking about it in other words I, you know i make no excuses this is what makes my hair stand on end. This is what gives me goosebumps. And um, I, you know, I had a student who just couldn't even begin to say how important 
Gerard Manley Hopkins is to him. So it's it, it, this is it does for him what Emily Dickinson does for me. And and uh, you get into this problem where at first being told come up with 10 to 12 of these seems daunting. And then you realize what's daunting is that you just came up with 200, <laughs> 200 favorites. Right. Um, but in a case, in a case of something like, for example, the Norton anthology of poetry, which I have co-edited, co-edited three times in once in the nineties, one once in the 2010s and uh, the 2000s and once in the 2010s at no point, was I under any illusion, nor were my co-editors, that we were making an anthology of our own greatest hit hits, right. our, our own favorites. Of course, many of them were, but that wasn't the goal. The goal was to give an overview of what was historically significant and within that and, and be balanced about history to some degree. And uh, and then within that to choose our own favorites, because we are ultimately, you know, we are subjective beings and w why shouldn't we be? Whereas something like the Paul Hoover anthology or many others that are very specific, they're they're trying to do something that is they're not saying that more conventional or more often received poets aren't any good. They're just saying, here's what you haven't been reading. Right. And so it's hard for me to say because I've never seen the Van Torn anthology or his introduction. I don't know whether he was saying more, here's what I wish you would read, or whether he was actually kind of engaging in a form of propaganda. This right. is already a big deal. And I'm just representing what is already a big deal. I mean, it, see, it seems at least based on um, based on Carmine's characterization of it that it's he says um, trendier anecdotal styles were now being adopted. Styles Van Torn dismissed as laziness on a typewriter. Yes. As he saw it, poetry was an art of the senses. It flourished best and enjoyed its most exceptional breakthroughs when you fixed your eyes on the world and found words precise enough to evoke it. How to make others see that too? And mm -hmm. it, it's, so it does seem like he at least believed that that his favorites or his taste was being ignored. And I think I think it even notes that there there were sort of there were a couple of notable inclusions of already well known poems, but mostly they were sort of startling mm -hmm. out of left field selections. So it does seem like I mean, if the the Norton is maybe the you know at least for you know, uh, uh, American poetry anthologies. Like, I mean, it's the factual anthology that comes to mind. He even refers to it out of offhand, just like as one end of a spectrum, you know, like it is, mm -hmm. it is a factual anthology. As you said, your, your taste is, is, is maybe the, it is on the list, but at the bottom of the list of the, of your qualifications to edit it. Right. Yeah. There are a lot of other things that come before your own preference. That's right. Um, and, and so he, he does seem to be, he does seem to be, I mean, there is, I mean, it seems like what Van Torn is doing, at least as the essay presents it, and what Sternino's even uh, advocating or, or endorsing is a, is propaganda, is a partisan mm -hmm. approach to anthologizing. I mean, he says that anthologists should not set aside, oh yeah, an anthology can wield vastly more influence when it doesn't adjust for bias, but instead embraces it. 
He's okay. He's there, there he yeah. says. Oh, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. Sorry. No, I was just going to say we'll have much more influence, right? See, yeah. that in itself is a big statement about what Starnino and or Van Doren want in the sense that they're saying, I wish to shape the taste of others. And I don't mean that most anthologists don't have that as part of why they're doing their work. But I think what's interesting about what Starnino is, is proposing or, or reporting on and then proposing is that that comes to the fore, the idea that I am going to be a teacher, essentially. I'm going to teach the reading public what it has been missing by reading all of these lazy anecdotal poems, and I'm going to instruct them on how their taste can be improved. And, you know, teachers do that, but it's, you know, ideally, it seems to me, uh, how, how do I say this? I mean, can you go back to what you were quoting before I yeah, interrupted I can, you? I, I, yeah, yeah, I can. Uh, he says, first, an anthology can wield vastly more influence when it doesn't adjust for bias, but instead embraces it. Second, mm -hmm. that influence springs from an editor's readiness to impose his will on a body of work, mm -hmm. to perform the dissent, as it were, using other people's poems. Of course, even the most diligently nonpartisan anthology is a form of criticism. Poets are overestimated or underestimated or misrepresented in ways that turn them into other kinds of poets or at least versions that don't exist anywhere else. So he, he does talk That's about a dissent true. as like, I think of like the, the Supreme Court, like there's, there are anthologies of decision and there are anthologies of dissent. And he's sort of proposing that you, you set forth an anthology of dissent as if it were an anthology of decisions. <laughs> like, he, yeah, but you have, to, so you have to honor the sophistication of your reader. And even right. if your reader doesn't know as much about poetry as you do, they are come to these poems and they shouldn't be lied to that these are famous <laughs> poems if they're not, right? But there was something else you said that we are going to be presenting poets not exactly as they were, even in less traditional, more traditional anthologies. And that is very true. And the example that the main reason in my experience is that anthologies, in order to be relatively even-handed and not give too much, too many pages to even the big stars or too many pages to certain periods will favor shorter lyrics rather than long pieces. I had a funny letter from somebody, a reader, to the first time I edited the Norton and I had, I had taken out a little bit of the Robinson Jeffers and uh, 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 that my predecessor had had in. And this, this reader wrote to me and said, you're obviously, you know, trying to obliterate Jeffers from, you know, the tradition you really in order, you know, he's the greatest 20th century poet and you really should include all of his work. And I, I mean, I've been told that I should have included all of Leaves of Grass, um, that I should have included all of the prelude. I mean, people really don't understand that the nature of an, a comprehensive anthology, even if you can, even if it isn't 2,000 pages, but you know, 2,000 pages is the most you can have before the binding falls apart. So if that's your goal, 2,000 pages, and then, Perforce, you have to misrepresent Walt Whitman. 
and William Worth and a lot of other people. You can't give the whole thing. And on the other hand, we did have a rule after we did this together the first time, uh, I was working with the same people, that if we only had one poem by a poet that we wanted to put in, the assumption should be that we, we can't put that poet in. If you can't find two poets that you think are two poems by this poet that you think are worth being in the anthology, then they're not get it in. And that was a good rule of thumb that we, especially because we made exceptions. There were some people who just wrote one marvelous thing and you got to put it in there. But, but I, those are the sort of the two ways in which poets I think can be misrepresented that have to do with scale. Oh yeah. I mean, it totally makes sense. And I mean, I know Ryan, who's done a little bit of anthologizing as well, has has said that that one element that people never give enough attention to that limits anthologists is uh, cost. That that some of these poems, they don't all cost the same amount. And there's certain, you know, there's certain poets where you you can only include so much because you can't afford to include anymore. Oh, that's so true. And it's more true every year. And fortunately, Norton never said to us, you can't have that poet because of the cost. But in the years that I worked on the book, uh, it cost more than doubled. And okay. so the part that I, I and one other editor was in charge of, which is 1800 to the present, anything by anybody who was out, it was not in the public domain. Anybody passed, I don't know what year it was, but 1920 something. Um, uh, Suddenly you had to really think about, you you would not not include someone because they were expensive, but you did have to think about what will the total cost of the book be? Oh yeah. There was some, I want to say it was Helen Gardner. That, that, I don't think that dates mm-hmm. right for that, but there's some, the, I mean, I love her. I love her um, Oxford Book of English verse, partly because it has no table of contents. <laughs> so you, just, you can only, it's like, a, it has to be a You must book. browse. Yeah, you have yeah. to page through it. But I think she, or maybe maybe a different anthology I'm thinking of, they, they presented the principle that you just, you solve some of the problem of of uh, sifting, as he calls it, you know, sifting through what's, what's, the, what's valuable if, uh, out of contemporary verse. You, you solve that problem by just including nothing from the previous 50 years that was that was the standard which seems like it, it would it would at least make the you know copyright uh prices go you know costs go down a little bit makes make something they would, simpler. they would the problem with that is that increasingly if you are using uh anthologies in in, co- in college courses right. you know it, increasingly it's not just the students but the teachers who want the latest thing yeah, and I, it's I, harder and harder and harder to get somebody to read Gerard Manley Hopkins, right? <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. that is yeah. that is part of the problem. Um, oh, of course, yeah. I do. I do wonder because I mean, there, there are a few questions that that start. I mean, obviously, he's he's chosen a focus for his essay, and I, I think it's a it's really worthwhile read. I have a kind of a theory about it. Maybe I'll pitch later, but you know, there are, are, are a couple of questions he doesn't examine, and I think quite enough depth. One of these is the question of representation of poems versus poets. And I wonder, apart from that kind of two poem rule, especially for you dealing with a, a new, for, you know, you, the Norton is, has an eye to history, as you said, it's not, you know, it, 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 it matters what has been historically significant. That's something that you have to take into account. I wonder how you think about the question of representing a 
poet versus representing poems. Cause I, I do. Yeah. I think like there is that kind of, there are sort of one hit wonders or, or at least pseudo one hit wonders where it's like one that's amazing. And then some others that are pretty good. Right. But, but even beyond that, I, I wonder about whether, whether you have to choose ever between the poems that are the poems that sort of most characterize this poet and the poems that you think are finest, or I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure how. how yes. That it's a really interesting question. What is most representative of a poet's whole career may not necessarily represent allow for your printing the very best thing that you think they ever wrote. And, and one reason, one way around that is a different kind of anthology. I know you must know this whole series of everyman poetry anthologies where they'll have like poems about birds, poems about parents. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, my friend Carl Kirchway did one recently called uh, Poems of Healing, which was just wonderful. And in, the, in those cases, it's very rare you would have two poems by the same person. It's you're choosing a theme, you're allowing yourself a great range, not only of time, but also we can get into this question of whether you want to allow translated poems, and he chose to do that. Um, but, you know, it, you don't need, I mean, you could certainly have an entire book of poems, but you could repro reproduce an entire book by a poet about healing, for example. Uh, certainly, there are good examples of that. But the aspiration of the anthology is just obviously different and yeah. you feel good yeah. about that you're not representing careers you're representing poems yeah that that kind yeah. of anthology particularly because oh. those tend to be pretty slender at least i, I have yes. one or two yes yes there's there's they're really small format they're really yeah. meant to be kind of pocket anthologies right or like a uh like a mixtape it's like you know you could sit down yes. and read them read through them in a sitting and it's sort of it's that yeah it's yes sort of when you you've arranged an experience or like it's like an, an evening of entertainment so the way they used to exactly say exactly yeah and yeah. i think that that you know the gigantism of anthologies is is necessary um, but there's another way to do it. And I, I like that. And yeah. in that way, you're not being counterfactual. You're not saying all poems are about birds. You know, you're saying I have an interest in birds and I'm, I'm noticing there are a whole lot of great poems about birds. So here they are. The I mean, One of the other questions, I think it may be the biggest question that, that doesn't quite get, I think as much attention as, as it could in a different, in a different essay here is the question of what exactly anthologies do that he, mm -hmm. he he talks about them as if they as if they you know we said you know set the taste or determine the culture or they they affect readers in one way or another but it, it does seem like it, it's not quite clear what he thinks they do and I'm curious for you uh, you know who has so much experience with that what you think anthologies should do or what they actually do what what effect they have you know apart from the the best intentions of the anthologists. It's a really good question. I think it is rarer and rarer to courses in college where you really are with Cadman's hymn and you go all the way to Tracy Smith. It's much more the case today that you're going to take a short historical period and or a theme. And so 
I hope that one of the things that bigger anthologies do, more comprehensive anthologies do, is remind you that there's more than you can absorb, that, that even though you're taking a class, the class is really called life, and that you're buying this book because you're going to be dipping into it from time to time in a rare way after you've had the guidance of a teacher to tell you what he or she thinks is the best. But, you know, it's impossible to absorb um, big historical anthologies in anything like a sitting or anything like a year or anything like five years. And so I think that's one thing that anthologies can do. And they, they teach you what your own taste is. If you keep going back to particular poems or particular poets, you're learning mostly unconsciously, but eventually a little more consciously. What do I like? Why do I like that? What does that make me think of? And then you get to, if, if, if you've had those kinds of thoughts, maybe you're even asking yourself, what is poetry for? Why am, I, <laughs> why am I reading this? What is that thing? What are poems? You know, so you begin with the sense of being overwhelmed by history and by the, the seeming erudition of whoever put it together. And finally, you get down to who am I, what do I like, and what is a poem? Yeah, no, that, I, hadn't, I hadn't thought of it in those terms, but that makes some sense that, you know, it almost as a mirror of your personal anthology assignment, that there's, yeah. there's, it's almost like one of those, when you go to the doctor and you get an allergy test, they prick you <laughs> with a bunch of different things to see which one set off a reaction. That's a good analogy. I really like that. Yeah. yeah. You, you, you know, you may find that the, you you didn't expect to respond to this or that, but but this is what right. gets you. It works in the negative sense too. I, I you know, <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. I have allergies to certain poets. I'm uh, not going to name them, but I definitely do. <laughs> yeah, no, and, and I got I got a, a heavy dose of some of those as an undergrad, and I've, <laughs> I've been yeah scared scared off from them since. Do you do you know the the Borges uh, short story Talon Akbar or uh, Tertius? I think it was his I, first. Not offhand, one. no. If I've read it, I don't remember. It, it was. I think it was the first piece of fiction he published. But it, uh, it, it it's a you know a typical kind of convoluted Borges story. But but the basic idea is that this this cabal of geniuses over the centuries has sort of slowly put together this master encyclopedia of a whole world that does not exist. Oh yes, and yes. then they release a volume of it into the world, and it sort of it sets off these ripples. Yeah. People begin, and it it feels like reading this essay. It, it feels like that sort of what Starnino dreams of. As yes, a, that's as a, a really kind of good analogy. Yeah, anthology, uh, which is beautiful, but also I don't know how much anthologies do that. I mean, it also it also just makes me wonder about what. Apart from, I mean, I guess apart from like intersections with actual history, what it means for poetry or a certain type of, excuse me, a certain type of poetry to to be prominent or to be, I mean, often that means nothing more than than what's the case for this stretch of fifty years at a time. I mean, do, do, yeah, do, yeah, because oh, because I mean, you, yeah, your your anthology stretches over all the time. You have a slightly smaller stretch of that that you're in you know in charge of but but you you know you have to have this awareness with with your co-anthologist that 
within this great span, various of these poets have, have risen and fallen in and out of even, you know, view at different times. Right. And, um, and I'm so grateful to people who nudge me and say, have you read so-and-so? Um, there's a John Wyeth Allen who's the po American poet who wrote sonnets um, while on the front in, in France in World War One, I'd never heard of him. And Dana Joya put out an anthology of, uh, well, a collection of his poems. And um, it was because of that, you know, that I discovered. That, and so this person isn't prominent and he, he's not prominent now either. But, uh, but it is wonderful to think that even though people sometimes fall in, into complete darkness, that they can be brought up into at least a little bit of light. But, you know, you're talking about prominent poems. I, I This is an aside, but I hope an amusing one. I was at the hairdresser today. and um, Looks very nice. Thank you very much. And, um, and I was reading a book by Mark Strand, a book of his stories, Mr. and Mrs. Baby, um, while, uh, while stuff was on my head and my hairdresser was wa watching something on his phone. It it's a one man shop. So it was just the two of us in the, in the place. And he was laughing just with such delight at whatever it was that he was watching. And he said, you have to see this. He's following somebody on TikTok who, um, shows herself being threatened by some bird that is, lives inside her house is constantly trying to peck at her. And, and, and she says witty things about this bird while it tries to kill her. And she does it all the time and people watch it. And I, I wish I could remember what her name is. And I said to him trying to be, you know, neutral as I could, like, why, why do you think, why do you think people follow her? How do people start following that? And he said, well, somebody on Facebook posted it and I followed it and now I, I'm addicted to her and I follow her all the time. And then he said she has almost 500,000 followers. Oh, yeah. And I thought and I, I held up Mark Strand's book and I said. He is a famous poet. And I would guess that this little book of his short stories did not sell more than 10,000 copies. And I said, if I ever, if I ever sold a book and I sold, I published a book and it's, uh, it's, it's, and it sold 10,000 copies, I would be the happiest poet in the world. <laughs> I said, so here's this woman in her living room with this, this bird. I, I, there's a turkey. I don't know what it was. Kept trying to peck at her and half a million people are following. So I know that's an that's definitely an aside, but I'm just trying to keep current about what it means to be a prominent poet. That see that anecdote is both uh, alarming and <laughs> heartening. I would say in that it's it's it just just one more reminder of how <laughs> insignificant uh, poetry is in our in our culture. But what I what I like about what I like about what your hairdresser said about this woman is that he was exposed to it and he liked it and that's mm -hmm. why he followed it. And that's something yes. that, that I, again, it doesn't really get, it gets mentioned a couple of times in this essay, but it feels like the question that's always, or that's, that is very often uh, navigated around in conversations about poetry that, you know, my kingdom for 
a poetry culture in which what mattered was that you were exposed to something and then you liked it. You know, that, that, that yes, seems yes. so alien to the way we deal with poetry. And it is what, you know, I, insofar as a, an anthology might be like an allergy test for students, there's, that's where, you know, Sternino's sort of partisan approach, I, I can understand it. I don't totally endorse it, but I, but I get it in that Mm-hmm. If he, you know, his his belief is that when they're the the poetry he's talking about, the poetry that he seems to to advocate with, you know, promoting in this sort of way is poetry that if people were to be exposed to it, they would like it. Yes, that's right, and that's a really good point. And I do believe that we are all born with poetry in our souls, and it's reflected in the fact that as very tiny children, we respond to song, we reproduce song before we understand what it means. My little granddaughter sings Twinkle Twinkle Little. She has no idea what that means. And she loves poetry. I mean, that's ultimately, you know, so it it gets killed out of us. And it's because we are not exposed to it uh, in a way that makes it continue to be fun. And the, what cheers me up is is that I actually believe that everybody loves poetry because everybody loves music. It's just that for most people, the only way they love poetry is through music. And I would prefer that more of our culture could be not, I mean, not denigrating music at all because it, it goes straight to the heart uh, in ways that a lot of times poetry doesn't, but I, that it's a separate it's a related joy, but it's a separate joy and that you need people who think it's fun to teach you to, to, to expose it so that you continue to think it's fun. And, and then, and then this thing that we not, none of us understand, which is why is it that even if a poem makes us very sad, we want to read it again and read it again. And I think for me, that's more true of poetry and drama than of other other genres. I mean, how many times can we see there? Pretty much infinitely. And I'm sorry, sorry, your, your audio your audio clipped slightly just there. Oh, but you were said, sorry. You were saying I said, how many times can we see King Lear? Pretty much infinitely. Um, we'll hear something different every time, and it's partly because it's in poetry, but it's also because um, we are stirred up and we are, you know, it's this pity and fear. It's the catharsis that we, we want. And, and, you know, Wordsworth talks about this in the preface to lyrical ballads about the, the pleasure we get in, in things well said. And, and that that in itself redeems so much of what is painful. And so for, I often feel that if people don't have that, if they can't meet pain with the pleasure of poetry, that is one resource that is to me essential anyway, that I feel others ought to have. I know, I know this is to some degree partisan truly because I know there are mathematicians who feel that about math, you know, that if you can't really appreciate math, you, you miss something about what it is to be human. And they're probably right. Oh, they're, oh they're, certainly, they're certainly right. Just like if you've never, yeah. if you've never given birth, you you know, and, and I, you know, I clearly have not, not, and never will. And so, and that's also true for plenty of women, but 
yeah, you're, I mean, and if you've never gone to war, you're there, y'all, there, there are plenty right. of experiences that if you, if you haven't done them, you, you are missing part of what it is to be human, but, but that's yes. also part of the beauty of literature is it can give you a glimpse. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And if you, and, and it's a glimpse. And that's the other thing about poetry that ought to make it more popular than it is. If we do have only time for a little TikTok, then we do have time for a little haiku. You know, if we, it's too bad that we don't necessarily go there, you know? So the problem with anthologies too, is that in their effort to give the reader many alternatives, all of them pleasurable, they can seem like a weight that is too heavy to bear that, you know, oh, I look at all this stuff I don't know. And I feel it, I don't know about you, I feel it sometimes going into bookstores or large libraries where I just, I, I'm excited to go, that's why I'm there. And then I'm there and I suddenly feel overwhelmed by, you know, what I'm never going to read. And, and you know, you can't dwell in that. And, but I can see why some people looking at anthologies would feel that way, that this is effectively a huge library in front of me and I can't do it all. Yeah, and there's, there is something, there's a, a, a disadvantage to, as, as Sternino says, to presenting your dissent or your decision or whatever it is in the poems of someone else. And that's, I think that we lose a little bit of the motive of writing that no, well, I don't know. I mean, I, I, would, I, would, I hope to, that no sane poet has ever written a poem hoping for it to be taught and explained in class, though that's probably not true. <laughs> it should be true. Alas, I think somebody's yeah. done it. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I fear. But, you know, th- th- that ought to be the case, at least, that poets sit down to write poems in, uh, in order to give other people a pleasure, a thrill, or make them cry, or make them remember something, st- you know, uh, cut themselves shaving, as, as Hausman would say. But they, but I think what we all have experience with are, are teachers who who have an intention other than that, who have an intention to, to improve us, to edify us, to, to right. supply us, to equip us for something. And so unfortunately, the, the, it's, not the poem, it's not the poets who have chosen these poems as their weapons, it's the teachers. Do you have, um, I mean, I think it's probably impossible to teach thoughtfully and not have misgivings about it, but as somebody who's you know, had a very thorough education and also provided others with education for a long time. Do you, and you're, this is, is this your last semester teaching? Yes. Uh, Yes. So do you have, uh, do you have any, any, you know, long, long view wisdom on, on the, the, the difficulties of teaching or the compromises or the, you know, despair, you know, whether whether that's writing or just poetry or anything. Well, that the phrase that I always come back to is fit audience, though few, you know, I, I, I just want to hope that we, we've, here's another, we band of brothers, you know, we few, we have to few. I mean, there, that those of us who love this stuff, we are very few, and we are fewer, I think, proportionately anyway, than we used to be in my grandparents' era, let's say, um, when everybody read poetry in school. But I, I guess what gives me hope is that it's not just that I get to pass on whatever wisdom I've got. It really is that young people being exposed to poetry 
are going to see it differently than I. They're going to press it farther than I can. That young people writing right now, I may not live to see something that they write in 50 years, but they're going where because we know historically that that has been the case, that many poets who we now think of as just as, as essential and canonical were pretty radical when they were writing. And I'm not talking about, you know, formal radicalism necessarily. It's, it, it can be um, an approach to what it is to be human. I mean, we are, we are embarked on a very different sense of what that is in our cyber culture, you know, and who knows? I know that I can't envision it, but I do believe that some of the poets who are being taught in universities, whether by me or by others, are going to do something that is better than I can, I can project, that I can even imagine. I have to believe that, while also lamenting the decline of rhetoric everywhere, the decline of any sense, you know, what syntax or grammar or anything else is. And as you say, the decline of an interest in audience. It's ironic, isn't it? Because on the one hand, Hollywood is... And, and television are the primary ways in which we hear stories and they are meant for mass audience. And most of us who love poetry love that too, love, you know, very popular films. And yet that seems so clear that the people who are successful in Hollywood are, are doing it because they reach many people. But somehow in the poetry world, there are, seems to me far too few people who are really thinking about their audience. I think that's true. I even think of the, in the various, you know, most of my, most of my degrees are in drama. So, and like in, in a, a refrain among my various teachers and, and people I worked with uh, was that they didn't want to make plays that were like TV, which is understandable for what, you know, in one, yes. the things yeah. plays can do, they're not like TV, but what I, what it ended up meaning very often was a sort of an arbitrary reaction that in a way they uh -huh. were, they were making theater that was derivative of TV by making it anti-TV. And of course, Interesting. Love, or, love or hate TV when it's good, it's not being good because it's trying to be TV. It's good because it's trying to tell a story well. And it's it's right. reaching for the readiest tools, you know, to achieve that. What I hadn't thought about, but of course makes perfect sense is that, as you said, you will, you will have students and they will probably not even be students you would be able to name at the time, but who will, who will see other possibilities and will go in yes. other directions. And if there's one thing we know about education, it's that there's, you can almost guarantee that the lesson that a really good student will learn is not going to be the lesson that the teacher was attempting to teach. Exactly. What, whatever you're aiming to teach, you will spin your students off in, in you know, God knows what direction. Maybe, maybe even just to to spite you, you know. <laughs> that, that right. Maybe, that's yeah. part of it too. I mean, I mean, that's part of what children do with their parents. They are both, you know, they use us as models and they also use us as as foils. And I also feel somewhat optimistic about poetry because we have more ways of getting it out there. I mean, if it were only books of poems, 
and there were no other way to get it out, it, it, that would really be a problem. And I'm delighted that there is a world in which you and I get to publish actual books of poems. But um, but there are other ways that people read poetry, and it is more democratic that way, and it's good. People break all sorts of copyright rules and print your poem in some weird way, forget to, you know, they don't put it in stanzas anymore, whatever. It's getting out there. And that's good. You know, I wanted to go back, though, to something you mentioned, which was that um, Yeats anthology of modern verse. And no, I was just thinking about how wrongheaded great poets and anthologists can be. And and isn't it marvelous that that Yeats, who we love, could be so wrong and and not think that Wilfred Owen deserved a place. And and who else was in that list? I'm just looking now. Oh, yeah. oh uh, Dylan Thomas. Yeah, Dylan Thomas, Wilfred Owen, <laughs> William Frost. Carlos Williams, Robert Frost. <laughs> I mean, that's really funny. That is really funny. But he was kind of beginning to get kind of ornery by 1936. Yeats was... Um, you know, becoming politically also a bit of a problem by then. Um, anyway, um, yeah. Oh, yeah. we can be wrong. It's okay. I mean, what he did was what I was asking my students to do. Just say what you do, what you like, you know, unfortunately it was called Oxford book of modern verse rather than Mr. Yates's favorite, favorite poems, which is what it probably should have been called. Do, do you think uh, it, um, since, since arbitrary binding decisions across contexts seem, seem uh, uh, always to be fruitful in this arena. Um, do you think if you had guidelines for, anthologies or anthologists you you know how how you know Sternino seems to have an idea about how anthologies should be or should be written uh do you have any uh any proposals any or, or like a yeah. pound any list of don'ts don't write too many footnotes as as we continue to work on these different editions we we defined more and more words. We had the glosses on uh, in the margin defining words that you can look up in the dictionary. I do think that historical and other kinds of, you know, factual footnotes are very helpful, but, um, but yeah, don't define words. That seems like a minor thing, but it's, it's kind of important. If you're going to have biographies of the writers, have them be completely non-evaluative, just, just the fact. Oh, right? Yeah. right. Let right, the right, let yeah. the reader come freshly to the material. If they're interested in Yeats, they'll find out what he did with the Irish theater and what he, his mixed feelings about uh, the revolution and everything. I mean, don't overinterpret. Write an anthology that explains exactly what your goals are and what your goals aren't. Uh, I, I, did I say an anthology? I meant to say introduction. Oh, you're that, right. That's yeah, what yeah, I meant. Yeah, yeah. Writer an introduction. And that covers a lot of ground. If, if, you know, for example, I mean, we decided that we would not have any translations except of Old English. So beyond that, we weren't going to include anything translated. And that left out a lot of wonderful stuff. But you got to stop somewhere. I guess if I look back to the 1983 version of the Norton, which is what I was working with when I and my friends put together the 1995 edition, those editors from 1983 
were completely uninterested in questions of gender or race or anything. And as a result, they published almost entirely white males. <laughs> That's one side. That's unfortunate. But we can go in the other direction, too. And I don't I think we, we did do a good job with the Norton. But I'm just saying I don't think it's the role of anthologies to be counterfactual in that sense, to suddenly have. 70% women, for example, when the historical record shows that most of them weren't publishing until at least the Renaissance, right? And, and not much after. Um, so, I mean, be aware of the political value of what you're doing, but, but um, go easy with that too. I mean, it seems like that's maybe one element of the job that illustrates how potentially thankless the whole enterprise is. I mean, I, I can think, I mean, uh, edit, I mean, uh, I was thinking, uh, talking with a, another poet the other day about like editing and reviewing and maybe even like anthology editing in particular are among the most thankless literary labors you can perform because you will, if you, if anyone notices that you did it at all, it will be because they think you fucked up. <laughs> like that, that so true. <laughs> you put it so well. It's exactly right. And corollary to that, if they're a poet is, um, you know, and, and you fucked up because I'm not in there. Right. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and so I would just like to say, while I have the opportunity, I would like to thank all of the fine poets I know who I really admire and I, for some reason or other, my co-editors and I could not put them in, could not fit them into the Norton. And I would like to thank all those people who never complained and never said, why, why not me? Because they understood that this is representative and not, and not encyclopedic. And it just, we can't, we can't do it. We can't represent all. And I have had so many regrets in, after each edition about I, I read something and I think, oh, I wish I'd put that in there, you know, but you, you can't. And so I'm just grateful for anybody who didn't complain. Yeah, oh, it, had, I mean, it hadn't even occurred to me, but there's got to be a little bit of, I mean, I'm sure I, it's y'all are all friends, but there's got to be uh, a little bit of a uh, professional envy of the, the editors who are covering all, all, only dead poets. There's, there's a yes, yes, I used to tease, yes, I used to tease my co-editor because she stopped in 1799 and it really, you know. Yeah, it makes, yeah. makes the, the email inbox burden a little lighter. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, they're not in cutting Bradstreet. you in the, Sh yeah. Shakespeare is not cutting you in the street, you know. <laughs> I'm Yeah, I, I, I thought about this question. I mean, I, I read this essay when it came out back in April, I guess it was, but I, I thought about the same kind of question with, because there's so much of it that I think you can argue with it, or you say, well, it's, his definitions are not very clear, or some of this seems sort of crazy, like you couldn't really approach anthologies this way. But then, do, do you know, um, Austin has a new essay in the LA Review of Books on meter? No. It's, it's long and it's, I'm actually going to be talking with him about that uh, on this podcast as well. And, and what's the subject? It's a sort of a long, a long, hopefully dispositive take on the free verse versus meter wars. Oh, good. I'll yeah. be very it's, interested to read he him does, on he that. Does a, he does a very good job. Uh, very smart. Other friends of mine have already you know, had heated arguments with me about it. And, there's, and I'm, I'm gonna, I have lots of questions for him. But it, it sort of, I think about that essay a little bit the way I do with this one, which is if you were to take all of its proposals as given and, you know, like Kant, you know, will that they be universal law, 
then that mm-hmm. probably doesn't really hold up. But as with, um, I kind of like, I thought of this essay almost as being a kind of counterfactual anthology. Like it's, a, it's, it's mm-hmm. not that this would really make for a good proposal for how anthology should be, but, but uh, I'm glad he wrote it. Like, I'm glad, I'm glad yeah. he wrote it almost as a, almost like a, as a modest proposal, you know, uh, that yes. needs to be sort of set forth. And I think Austin has, a, Austin's is less perverse. It's a little more straightforward as an essay, but it has a little bit of that mm-hmm. spirit to it. I think like, 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 I mean, again, Borges thought, uh, he said um, he, he had trouble writing because he, he always had these elaborate plans for enormous uh, novels or epics. And it wasn't until he he came up with a trick, which was that he would imagine that the book he wanted to write already existed, and then he would write a summary of it, um, <laughs> and then that would be his story. And it feels a little bit like Carmen. Like there's a version of this that could have been like the 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 life you know the life spanning master counterfactual anthology, but instead it was sort of it was it was cleaner and maybe maybe more fun and more effective just to write a 14 page essay instead. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I like I like this the spirit of it too. And and you know, at one point he says that uh, Sternino says that you know creativity is by its nature counterfactual. And so what he's ultimately saying is let's call the anthology itself a work of creativity. It is making something. It's making a vision of what poetry can be. And it's selecting the things that the anthologist doesn't wish it to be. And here are the things that he would like it to be. And it and, and basically just says, so there, now, now discuss, right? The way you would with an exam, you know, here it is. Now, now you figure it out. And it'll be interesting whether anthologies, how they will change with time, because the real fact we have to deal with here is that we do have so many modes of communicating and so many people uploading their communications into the, those various modes that it may become more and more difficult to believe in anybody's wisdom. On the other hand, I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I think people generally, when they feel overwhelmed, say they turn to someone they respect and they say, what do you think? Right. And so maybe that will never die. Maybe that, that turning to an anthology as a kind of teacher. And yeah. they- no, I think, I think that kind of, uh, there will always be a, a desire for that kind of authority, especially in a, uh, an educational context. It also makes me think about the sort of the, the other or a, a very different model of anthology, which is something like uh, the writer's almanac or poetry daily, which is like, mm-hmm. it, it is an anthology. It's, you know, it's, it's over time and it's, it's serialized. So it's always, it's it and it's, an, maybe it's editor and it's criteria are changing, but it is a selection yes. and it's in some ways suited to our distracted age. And that it, it says, just worry about this one right now, just that, you know, and that that's not, right. I, I mean, it's, I think about that because I do, I do read poems intermittently, you know, as part of this podcast and it's, in that sense, it is a kind of an anthology that I think about across time. Like it, at yes. least this one thing is worth your attention right now. That I won't I won't argue anything else except it's worth hearing right. this out. But listen to this. Yeah, it becomes sort of an anthology of Matthew Smith's taste in the way that Garrison Keillor, if you listen to him for years, which I did, you know, you you oh that sounds like a poem he would like, you know, <laughs> and and that's good. I mean, I, I, that's valuable too, and especially if 
And I'm sure your listeners do trust you or they wouldn't come back. They they want, they are happy to listen because they know they will disagree. That's sometimes the case. That's the feedback. Well, I that, that, that can be fun too. Right. Yeah, that can be fun too. Which I welcome. As, uh, uh, oh, who was it? Who's the old uh, Massachusetts? Oh, Bar- Barney Frank used to say that he... Uh, he he knew of plenty of voters who voted for him out of spite, and he said, "I love those voters. Too. I love all. Yeah, <laughs> I welcome all of them." <laughs> Do you have? A, is, is there? A, is, I can't remember his name. Um, John Banville's uh, pseudonym he uses for his detective stories is it something John Black or something Black? Yes, it is, and I just read one of his books, April. April in Spain. Yeah, I can't. Benjamin Black. Benjamin I Black. Think. That's what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 yeah it makes me. Mm-hmm. It makes me wonder if, uh, and maybe we won't know. Maybe maybe it'll have to be under a pseudonym. But it, but as the as the the respectable editor of the Norton, it makes me wonder if there's a if there's a a a, a perverse shadow anthology that you would at some point uh, put forth. That it, what would that you know if if you were if you were to put forth an anthology that could ignore all of the the good sensible guidelines you've developed for your for the Norton, mm, what would that's that fun. What fun, what a fun be, question that yeah. is. I can't remember. Is it called the stuffed owl? There's an anthology of the worst oh, poems that yes. the, the yeah. anthologist has ever seen. I would have fun doing that. I've, I've yeah. spent my whole career trying to find good poems. And I, I, in the process, I've, I've stumbled across some real, you know, some real dogs. So I think that's what I'd like to do. Yeah, yeah and, and that is there is a because there's something special about the the howler, right? That it's not good yeah. enough if it's just dull and bad and boring. It, it has to right. achieve, in a way, like it had like a uh, C.S. Lewis has that argument against Manichaeanism. He says like, well, even what makes Satan, you know, scary is that he has some of the qualities of goodness. Because if he weren't strong yes. or what, you know, so there's something about yes. a really terrifically bad poem that has to have some virtues otherwise it, it does it's not enough you know all right yeah i could see yeah no you've actually given me a really fun project you know as yeah. I'm, I'm you know facing retirement this will this could be an, an interesting thing yeah. to work on no i would love, maybe, yeah, we love could, to, maybe we could do it together i'm sure yeah, you encounter yeah, yeah. some really bad ones and if and it, yeah, yeah. If, if it becomes too onerous you then you just do you just pull a starnino and you write an essay proposing that somebody do this <laughs> You set out some guidelines. You say, "All right, good, good enough. You do, you do it." I'm, I'm curious. My my um uh, uh my very first semester of college, I had an acting teacher who was <laughs> had just been fired in disgrace, but had in his contract a semester to go. So, oh no, uh, uh, his yeah his, his his position is you know there's small differences between that and yours, which is you know retiring in with great honors after many years of distinguished service. But in 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 his case, part of what I enjoyed about him was that instead of just phoning it in or or ignoring us, he he sort of decided to throw out the syllabus and just teach the class the way he sort of had always wanted to teach it. And it was in some ways it was crazy, uh, but it was also really, he threw caution to the wind in teaching us. And it was, it made for and, kind and of a wonderful- And can you give some class. examples? How, how, how did he throw caution to the wind? We, well, we definitely, there were definitely people not, it was not, it was not at his instigation, but he, but there were definitely exercises he set up that involved people, myself included, t- taking a lot of clothes off cloth in class. And he didn't, I'll say, he didn't step in. He didn't prevent that from happening. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, he he did assist. This is not where I thought you were going. No, well, I mean, it's with the, yeah. There was and there was like small scale bloodshed, but I mean, no, nobody was really hurt, and it was it was basically fine. There was, I mean, I remember a, a girl, a, a woman who actually went on to be a really fine director, 
doing a sense memory exercise with him and just collapsing into like really severe emotional distress, but was, I mean, we were very worried for her at that point, but she seemed to be really moved by it. And kind of, it was a, it ended up being a, a, a thing that she referred back to in her work later. It was the kind of thing that you, you would feel, I mean, is it thinking like now having had some teaching experience, I would like, it's the kind of thing I would like run screaming away from, you, you know, you don't want to, but it, it was, uh, he laid his hand, he basically had this sort of pseudo hypnotic routine where he laid his hands on this girl's shoulders and called up the, you know, the specter of her, uh, absentee father. I mean, it was, it was like really kind of borderline, like psychoanalysis kind of stuff. And it, it's all stuff that's sort of in the, it, it's in the ballpark of a lot of acting exercises. This was just stuff taken to such an extreme degree. We did Meisner exercises where we, we would just repeat back and forth the same slightly altered phrases to each other for like hours. Yeah. I mean, in yeah. some cases they would get like really, or they would just be like really brutal assessments of each other's appearances. <laughs> uh, oh, that would just go my. on and on. We spent a lot of time throwing and catching beanbags, <laughs> which is, which is, which That's is probably uh, the least hurtful thing you did. Sounds least, like. Oh yeah. And after you do it again, after you do it for hours, it becomes kind of meditative. You begin to, yeah, it was a crazy class. I'm, I'm very glad I took it. I'm glad. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I happened to be in his orbit at that moment, but, it, but it, again, you're not, thankfully your situation is very different from this, but I wonder having uh are there any uh, do you have any any um impulse to throw caution to the wind with your with your teaching this semester is there anything that you feel inclined to to cut loose on that you might not have before or that you know unfortunately and i'm i'm not making a particular statement about johns hopkins but unfortunately it's impossible to throw caution to the winds today. <laughs> you simply can't. Right, right. I mean, the kind of yeah. thing that your teacher did would just, I mean, he was already fired. He'd get fired again. Yeah. I mean, he, they would, they would yeah, drag yeah, him yeah. out. I mean, there are so many things that we feel we can't say. And I mostly approve of the notion that teachers, the teachers are not, psychotherapists, and they have to be very careful if they're bringing out psychologically sensitive material in class to really treat it. I mean, it's hard, it's harder actually with acting, I think, than with, with poetry, but, you know, you really do have to talk about the speaker and not about the, uh, the eye as if the, the, the writer is exactly the same as the eye. And you have to do various things to protect people's right to speak in a way that isn't hurtful, but I mean, we are just so oversensitive about so many things now that I, I regret that about where teaching is going. I, I, I'm glad that we have certain boundaries that we didn't have. I'm glad that we don't talk about each other's appearance uh, <laughs> in a way that we, I mean, I remember, you know, at the dawn of my teaching, you know, the kinds of things I would say, or, or I'd hug my students, I'd say, oh, I just love your dress, or, you know, all that stuff, I just, that's gone. You just can't do that now. And there's just a lot you can't do that you would do out of affection, that you don't intend it to be aggressive in any way, but it it, it may come across as that. So, no, I mean, my my idea of throwing gosh in the winds is letting them decide, you know, what to write about. I mean, that's, that's all I can do. I do, I, I do now. Now I want the, um, the, since you, you, you do have a, um, you know, I think mostly of you writing 
relatively short lyrics, but you do have a, a mode you take up from time to time of sort of the, the long discursive either mm -hmm. monologue or semi-narrative poem. I think of like the, the surveyor's poem, which is such a strange sort of mm -hmm. um, Mobius strip of a poem. Yeah, I, I kind of want a either a dramatic monologue or a narrative poem about a about, you know, like what's the the Yates, uh, nor is there um, singing school, but I mean, I kind of want like your singing school, like the, you know, uh, That's it's, interesting. It's, like you, and you could even do it the way, the way the people used to, which is make it some damned figure who like, like take some figure who's already, who's already earned our disapproval, make it, you know, Humpert Humpert or somebody we, we, we already know he's bad, but then let him maybe be a genius at the certain kind of thing that we can't, the kind of teaching yeah. that maybe is, would be, would be great if poets could have this kind of teaching, but they can't. Yes. And I, you know, I love academic satire. I think there's no way I could write about such things in the way you're describing without at least attempting to be funny. I mean, there's something just of course, please, hilarious yeah. about academia generally. I just read Richard Rousseau's 1998 academic satire, Straight Man. And I, apart from the fact that basically the internet hardly existed in 1998, he had it down. It's just, it's hilarious and it's really really true. But, um, you know, I, you're right. I, I, I do like writing more narrative and discursive things. And I'll, I, I wanted to mention that in my new book coming out, I have a long, um, very counterfactual poem called Island Diaries, in which uh, poor Prospero is walking along the beach and this guy runs up behind him and it's Robinson Crusoe. And so they... <laughs> They both thought they had the island to themselves and they have to get along. So that that's is my it, counterfactual is, contribution. Is it called the bliss of solitude? <laughs> no, I, I very much had Elizabeth Bishop in mind. I knew I oh, couldn't yeah. step on her toes too much, oh, yeah. but no, it's called Island Diaries. Oh, and island they're diaries, both, right, they're right. both t telling, telling stories uh, no, I, I, through I, their diaries. I look forward to that. I pre-ordered. I don't know when it's going to arrive, but it's some sometime. I, I'm sure that yeah. I can get an e-galley to you. That oh, yeah. I mean, I would, that's I'd what love they to, do I'd now, where yeah. they don't have galleys and e-galleys. So I'll make sure I can get one. Yeah, too. no, I, I would I would love to read it. But I was just going to ask if you if you would uh, read, read something to, to send us out. Why don't I find something short? So this poem um, is the first poem in the book, but it makes it sound a little bit as if it's the last because it's called your session has timed out and it uh, that title runs into the first line your session has timed out due to inactivity do you want to reboot back to your nativity too bad you can't go back or forward for that matter remember running track dunking a basketball or come to think of it, doing anything at all? Too bad, you can't reboot. In fact, the very terms you use will soon be moot. We'll take their downward spiral like you to a black hole where, while brave new words go viral. Assuming being active or inactive is a thing in the future or to live. That was my conversation with Mary Jo Salter. Again, her new book is Zoom Rooms. It is now available for pre-order. I will have a link in the show notes to that. 
that last poem, that poem she read at the end is the first poem in Zoom Rooms. And again, uh, I've heard her read several other poems from the collection and they're really good. She's the rare combination of a extremely accomplished poet who is also a really, really delightful and, and basically uh, well-adjusted human being who's pretty, who's pretty pleasant to be around. Uh, so I hope you did enjoy my conversation with her. I will have links to all of her stuff, including the Norton Anthology of Fucking Poetry, which, which, is, uh, which is a real uh, doorstopper, but is, is truly a, um, an essential part of your fucking library. So uh, thank you to Mary Jo. Apologies to Carmine. Uh, though, again, reach out. Say, say the word. Come, come, uh, come talk some shop, Carmine. You, uh, thank you all for listening. Thank you all for listening. You can reach me as always at sleerickets at gmail.com. And with any luck, I will be speaking to you again very soon. Until then. (laughs) 